Okay, we're going to now turn to our, our, our last speaker, Katie Long. Um, Katie did not focus on a specific case study, really, the, the, the purpose of uh, her contribution. Uh, she, she produced the, the policy overview, and it was really to, to step back and to identify some of the key trends from the research and beyond and, 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 and really try to sort of draw some possible way forward to, to do what the title of, of this uh, project is about, which was uh, unlocking crisis of protected displacement. So Katie Long is a lecturer uh, in humanitarianism um, at the London School of Economics. Um, she researches the politics of migration in conflict and, and, and crisis-affected area, focusing in particular on refugee movement and what we call international solution to forced migration crisis. She's also been interested in sort of related post-conflict reconstruction processes, political understanding of humanitarianism, and the link between ideas of citizenship, national community, and residency. Uh, Katie has a particular interest in the East Horn and the Great Lakes of Africa, but she has actually carried uh, previous fieldwork in Mexico uh, and Guatemala. Uh, Katie has worked for the RSC in 2010 and 2011, and she remains, uh, like Anna, an RSC associate, so we, we like to look after our, <laughs> our former researcher. Um, Katie has also worked very closely with UNHCR in the past few few years, uh, especially with, um, with Jeff Crisp, who some of you may know him at, at headquarters. Um, and and so, um, some of her works focus on, on looking at how access to migration channels might contribute to resolving refugee exiles. And uh, this is one of the themes that Katie actually explored in uh, the policy overview which she wrote. And she will now tell us a little bit more about it. Great. Um, thank you. Um, so uh, my job now, I think, is to take some of that contextualization and the detail that we've just heard about from um, Dawn and Nizreen and from Anna um, and really try and think about it um, at an institutional level in terms of what types of changes to particularly sort of global policies, particularly donor and perhaps institutional frameworks, might help to both unlock protracted displacement, but perhaps even just less ambitious, um, stop exacerbating protracted displacements in some cases. Um, so I drew certainly on the, the fieldwork which came from these cases, but also, as, as Eliza suggested, on sort of a much broader research interest, which has really been for the last five years or so in durable solutions and a number of different cases, including Afghanistan, Great Lakes region, the Balkans, Ethiopia and Eastern Sudan, so drawing on secondary literature from a sort of much more global context. Um, so, um, if you want to slip forward, um, really what I'm offering today are kind of questions or headlines, I think, um, to hopefully get our discussion um, started. Um, and I think the first thing which came through was this idea of, well, when we talk about protracted refugee situations and, and uh, trying to solve them, is this really actually the, the right thing to be focusing on? Because actually in many of these cases there's, there's a real problem with the quality of asylum. Um, and in a sense the, the focus on the quality of, the focus on this rush to solve the crisis is sometimes I think a, a means of, of perhaps avoiding the, the more problematic and more complex question of the quality of asylum. Um, and many of the, many of the, the, the um, accounts that, that were picked up in the Iraqi case and in the Somali case 
really were as much about coping strategies to deal with the reality of displacement rather than about solutions per se. And I think it is important to make that distinction. Um, some of the some of the suggestions I'm going to make really can't be considered full and permanent solutions. They don't lead back to citizenship and full integration, but I think they do suggest ways in which protracted refugee um, situations, protracted displacement, uh, can be made perhaps more adequate um, to meet the needs of those who are displaced. Um, and also to avoid this, this masking of perhaps the poor conditions of asylum by focusing on this idea that we can rush to solve crises, which in effect tends to mean returning refugees and IDPs um, often prematurely. Let's move forward. The next kind of big phrase was this idea about solutions as development, because clearly the first challenge is protection with displacement. Clearly that must come first, and clearly any solution must offer a return to protection. But actually, in fact... Um, you know, any return um, has also to be sustainable. And sustainability goes beyond protection. It has to involve an engagement, really, in a development framework, in thinking about what capacities are needed to provide long-term citizenship. Um, in, I'm using citizenship as a sort of framework for thinking about access to the kinds of goods, services that make a life adequate, that, that allow you the capacity to live a full life. Um, so their protection is absolutely necessary for a solution and is very often missing even in that rush to a, a repatriation, even where it is present, even where we're moving into an area where perhaps there is sort of perhaps some, some opportunity for return. It's important to think about this in terms of human security and in terms of development. And I think that does involve bringing in actors who have not traditionally been involved in protracted displacement and getting them to think about how um, protracted refugees, protracted IDPs need to be integrated into much broader peace building and development programs. Um, next headline. Um, <coughs> the next one is, well, I don't see states anytime soon moving away from this fixation on return. I think that is a reality which really has to be dealt with. I think there is a very important role to play in, in defending the need for voluntariness in return, in, in defending asylum space. But in places where perhaps we are moving into a post-conflict situation, in places you know where there is return going on, I think it's important to question whether this is really about solving automatically or whether in fact resilience might be a better term to use, to think about how we might achieve resilience in return, given that in places like Afghanistan, in places like the Great Lakes region, there is huge pressure for return of protracted refugees. and, and how do we move beyond this, this sort of this push into something which will not be precarious, even though the peace, as we have seen in many regions, um, is precarious and will remain so for many years. The state capacity in most of these areas is likely to remain relatively limited, even if the transition into peace is successful. I think there are a few ideas. One is long-term planning and involvement of refugees from the beginning. And, and often, I think part of the problem is solutions are an afterthought actually we need to start thinking about solutions from the moment where uh, a refugee influx occurs. So long-term planning and involvement of refugees in, and, and IDPs um, even before the prospects for return are imminent so that it starts to be shaped not just by a process of consent at the end but as a process of consent in decision making. The second point I think is recognising the validity of intrastate and interstate movements um, post-return. There's been a tendency to assume that return has to mean return to a particular place. 
UNHCR has certainly moved away from that, but I think many states have been reluctant to accept that particularly rural to urban movements are likely to be part of the permanent transition, the permanent transformative process of displacement. And this really leads on to the kind of the next point, which is, of course, as I've said, solutions must protect against persecution because otherwise we're effectively refooling um, refugees, we're sending people back um, to, to a place where their lives or freedoms might be threatened. But I think we also have to recognise that there are many, many ways in which solutions are undermined by poverty. Um, we see this with secondary displacement, with um, people having to move into to areas where really the solution is not adequate. Um, and in a sense, the poverty protection gap speaks really to this question of, well, who is a refugee and, and what are the realities, what are the rights of movement? Um, but I think it is important to put it up there that really, again, we have to come back to this idea of thinking beyond protection and thinking about poverty and development. So, Nisreen, if we can have the next, next one. And this is, you know, the area where I write, and I apologise, some of you, I think, have heard some of what I'm going to say before, but I promise to keep it brief. Um, I think there's a recognition, as we've seen, that in the majority of these cases, migration plays on the ground an important role in helping to strengthen and de facto responses to crisis. I also think that the way in which the international community is really particularly concerned with managing migration, with controlling movement, particularly given current economic climate, both in the north but also in the south, there has been an increasing move to restrict and reduce movement, can often actually exacerbate the protection crisis, and this is a, a serious problem. But I think actually we need to accept and recognise the potential benefits um, which can be attached to movement and start to think a bit more creatively about what it means to be um, able to move and what benefits that might bring when we're talking about these very complex um, protracted displacements but also protracted crises of citizenship in the region of origin. We have the obvious things, remittances, education and skills training. Um, for IDPs, obviously, this is actually a, a recognised human right already, um, but it's one which is not always fully facilitated. I've written a lot on this, but I think it is important just to highlight there, you know, some people talk about migration as a fourth solution. It isn't. I don't think it is a fourth solution in itself. I think solutions are about citizenship. But I do think that what we have to do is rethink the way we think about citizenship and movement um, and how those connect, particularly in places where a single point of, of residency isn't going to provide you with access to all the goods, all the services that you need to build an adequate life, but to access opportunities perhaps for a better life as well and perhaps move beyond simple, uh, you know, bare life survival. Um, and I think this is an area where there has been sort of a degree of movement, but there's possible practical innovations that could be made. Visas and migration opportunities, actually removing the discrimination of some systems which exist that actually make it more difficult for the displaced to access existing migration systems than other individuals. Um, I can talk about all this in more detail, perhaps, in the questions. Um, enhancing protection in the movement is a protection strategy. So rather than people having to move clandestinely across borders, actually encouraging re-entry um, visas, perhaps, for those moving regularly between refugee and origin communities. And I think I'm right in saying there's been some, some interesting discussions in the Iraqi context on that recently. Um, I think working against involuntary immobility, which splashed up on one of Anna's slides, which is this idea that really small movements, actually facilitating small movements, can help to prevent larger and more catastrophic movements later. Actually recognising that movement itself is not a problem. 
if it's not forced movement, it can actually be a, a part of facilitating a, a better life. Um, and again, connecting repatriation return processes to local integration processes. Just a quick note on the strategic use of resettlement, uh, a phrase which is much beloved of uh, many resettlement officers, but um, I think there is a question about how effective that is in reality because we still have this question of numbers. It's very clear resettlement is really unlikely to provide the key to protracted refugee situations, and there's a question even about how this idea that protection spaces may be opened up by strategic <coughs> resettlement, how much that's really occurred in practice. Um, <laughs> I think there's also the question around the idea that it's not just resettlement is, is, is vastly over oversubscribed, but also massively, um, you know, it's trying to do many things. It's a protection tool as well as a durable solution. It's an emergency measure in terms of North Africa. So in a sense, it's, it's, it's not surprising that it isn't able to kind of, you know, take the weight which is often put on it. It's a highly filtered and selective process. Um, one of the problems, again, comes back to this idea of movement, it's the only migration opportunity for many, um, formal, regular migration opportunity for many refugees. And so again, we see strategic use of it by refugees, perhaps for reasons other than those which are seen as the, the deserving reasons. Um, and this brings us back to the idea of needing to think about alternative migration routes, alternative movement routes. Um, there is, of course, the Bhutanese case, which is, I think, an exception, um, particularly given the fact that many of these populations are seen as more troublesome, um, and there are particular security issues around, for instance, Somalis. Um, one interesting um, recent development has been, for instance, you know, the US offering um, victims of natural disaster in Haiti particular access to temporary work visas, another group who both fall outside the classic convention refugee protections, but are clearly falling into this group of, of needing to cope with long-term fragility in the place of origin. The final sort of traditional solution to look at is local integration, and I think this has to be a key part of any protracted um, solution to protracted displacement. But I think the question is, well, what does that look like? Um, because we have de facto integration in nearly every single case, no matter how encamped the population, a degree of local integration will take place. You get marriages, you get people born who don't speak the language of their home, you've never been there, you build up businesses, you actually get economic interdependence, you know, between the local populations and the, and the, and the communities. Um, so, and, and this is probably particularly true where you have urban refugees in some cases, where you have those living with perhaps access to land or ethnic affinities. It's not everywhere, but it is somewhere. Um, but you can't ignore the fact that de jure citizenship is an important aspect of local integration, particularly given the precarious legal status, the harassment, the additional protection problems that this consistent resistance to local integration in a formal sense has, 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 has had an effect on in, in terms of many of those who, who are living you know, clandestinely or in the shadows. Um, so I think the real question is, well, how do you overcome the resistance of these governments to the, to the local integration, which is in effect happening in already. It's happening in practice. It's about how do you marry that up with the local, with the legal protection regime. I think there are a number of things. I think the first is to focus on benefits as well as costs. An interesting study from the Danish Refugee Council showed that the DAB, for instance, contributes $40 million to the, um, to the annual economy in the region. That's, that's quite a considerable benefit. It's not without its costs to the DAB, but it's not only a cost. Um, the second, I think, is, is looking at a, a, a development approach. 
There are numbers of locals in these camps. I mean, some people will estimate as high as 50% in a 10-kilometer radius in some of these areas. We need to recognize that if there are locals in the camps, there is a need for a broader community development approach to recognizing the, the needs in many of these very poor communities is integral to solving these problems. Um, the third, I think, again, and it picks up a little bit on what Anna was talking about, a piecemeal approach. Um, pathways to citizenship for business owners, for university graduates, for second and third generation refugees, etc. Trying, rather than seeing it as an enormous group, to work out, you know, in the same way that the US works perhaps with asylum amnesties and different ideas about how you might move through for illegal migrants there, I think recognizing that, that actually there are going to be different solutions for those people in there depending on the level of integration. I think it is a difficult question and many NGOs have found it difficult because in a sense by doing that you're replicating the inequalities of our own social structure by allowing middle class refugees an exit route and keeping the poor refugees effectively in limbo. That's problematic. I suspect it's a problem that goes well beyond this to to broader questions around inequality. and finally, I think the big thing is, is, is thinking about it rather than seeing it as citizenship, starting to connect this, again, through migration with political repatriation back home. Um, one interesting case has been the case of the Congolese in Gabon, very recently, um, who, where cessation has actually been declared. And one of the routes which has been offered for those who did not wish to repatriate was um, UNHCR paid for a permis de séjour. Um, which allowed them to, which has allowed them to remain for the next, I think it's two years, um, as a regular migrant population. Now there is a question about what happens at the end of those two years. It's not a sort of you know definitive solution, but it, it does suggest there is room there to perhaps think about this more creatively than many governments have been prepared to. And another aspect of this, I think, is thinking about regional citizenships, which is. Um, you know, another question. Um, East Africa, ECOWAS have actually been able to use regional freedom of movement arrangements to try and provide some opportunities for for refugees, particularly towards the end where actually post-conflict reconstruction is taking place at some level, so repatriation in terms of getting a passport is possible, um, and moving away from these rigid national structures that produce refugees and also that arguably sustain protracted solutions. So if we move forward, I think we just need to skip the next and then the next one. Yeah, um, I think it's fairly obvious in some senses there isn't a single solution. And in some ways, I think some of what we've talked about today you can find in much of the literature already. But you know, I think what the innovations offer are perhaps the beginnings of a set of keys to unlock some of these problems. But the bigger question is really, you know political will and how do we move forward with states to actually take them with us it's very obvious sometimes when you look at the results of this research what could be done um, and I suppose the question you know, which perhaps can start our discussion is how do you actually get this from you know, research innovations to policy implementation and I figure I, unfortunately that that may be a far more difficult question to answer okay. yeah. thank you very much Katie and thank you to all of you <laughs> If you've enjoyed this download, you might like to listen to other podcasts of Force Migration Online. www.forcemigration.org slash podcasts.